You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. There's a scene from the life of Christ in John chapter 8 where uh, a group of religious men, Pharisees and scribes, catch a woman in the act of adultery, and they drag her into the temple court, throw her before Jesus, and they ask Jesus, what should we do? And they have stones in their hands, and they say, the law of Moses commands us to stone a woman who's caught in adultery. And uh, this is a moment where Jesus is being put in a trap. I mean, can you visualize this? This woman is there. Interestingly, the man who is also caught in the act of adultery is nowhere to be found. This woman is there, possibly half naked, uh, shaking, afraid. All eyes are on her. And uh, the Pharisees want to catch Jesus because, I mean, if he says, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. He's going against the law of Moses, and he's undermining you know, his role as a rabbi, as a teacher of the law. At the same time, uh, if you were to say, go ahead, kill this woman in that moment, I mean, he's undermining you know, everything that his ministry stands upon, this foundation of loving your neighbor as yourself and showing kindness and mercy, and so they think they've caught him. And uh, I wanted to start with that story because, not, not only because it, it's a very popular scene from the life of Christ, but we see ourselves in it, don't we? I feel like we've all been that woman. Just all eyes on you, uh, vulnerable, exposed, uh, maybe not you know, literal, you know, people with literal stones ready to throw at you, but people hurling accusations, condemnation, shame, ridicule, criticism, your way. I mean, after all, we live in the digital age. Mean tweets are a thing. And uh, it's so easy, not just for everyone to have an opinion, but everyone to share their opinion about this, that, or the other. I'm not a huge Jimmy Kimmel fan, but I, uh, I love the segment Celebrities and Mean Tweets. Anyone seen this before? And uh, I'm not saying it's wholesome, so this is not like a Hill City endorsement for the segment. Uh, But he does this segment where he gets celebrities on his show, and he films them. It's the first time they're seeing these tweets of uh, mean things that people say about them, and they're reading them about themselves, and I think it's just so funny that some celebrities, they read it, and they're like genuinely like, how could someone say that about me, you know? And other celebrities think it's just hilarious, right? So I thought I would put myself under the microscope a little bit. I'm not a celebrity, I don't pretend to be a celebrity, but as you know, uh, the more prominent you are in leadership, and pastors are not exempt from this, the more criticism you receive. And I receive a lot of criticism, I don't know if you realize this, I receive negative feedback, I mean partially uh, because I have a public role teaching the Bible, Uh, but also we stream this to the internet. And uh, especially recently, we've been sharing, you know, minute clips on Instagram. And I don't know exactly how the algorithm works, uh, but some of our sermon clips have gone to like thousands of people 
which spans well beyond uh, just our Hill City Church family. It's going to like, you know, whoever Instagram thinks would want to see me speak for one minute. And not everyone is happy that they saw that clip. So I want to read you, this is like word for word, a quote from an Instagram comment I received on my own profile. Are you ready? This is Josh Reed's a mean tweet. (laughs) You are evil. You do not speak for Jesus. You will never disarm me, you demon. (laughs) And it's like, I mean, you get, I mean, like sometimes it genuinely hurts. It's like, oh man, they just totally misunderstand me. This one, I was like, you just call me a demon on the internet. (laughs) Like it's insane, like the audacity of someone to do so. And, uh, and I say that maybe that's a bit of an extreme example, but have you experienced that? Where someone, maybe even a loved one, the, the, I mean, we teach our kids this nursery rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words shall never hurt me. And I think that's one of the greatest lies we teach our children. I mean, it's you know, maybe well-intentioned, you know, teaching kids to develop a thick skin, right? And that's maybe an, an admirable quality, and yet the reality is sticks and stones. Uh, they, they heal physical damage, but I mean, some people, the, the kind of emotional, mental health struggles you receive from, from mean tweets or from, I mean, try telling that nursery rhyme to the parent of a child who committed suicide over cyberbullying. It's just words. What does it matter? And the reality is words can give life, words can build up, or words can destroy or bring Death. But the point of today, and Jesus is teaching today, which is on judgment, uh, is actually not that we would view ourselves as the victims. And that's often when we read a scene like John 8, we see ourselves and the people who have, who have been mean to us. The reality is Jesus is actually asking us to view ourselves in a different role in the story as the people who are holding the stones ready to hurl accusation and death. And if you're honest with yourself, you've been there, haven't you? The church, oftentimes people who've gone to church the longest or who have the biggest self-righteous platform to stand on are the ones who hold the biggest stones ready to spew condemnation, eager to judge. So I want to challenge you today to view yourself as the accuser in the story and to hear the words that Jesus has to teach us from Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, sometimes in a sermon, often I will get to the end of the sermon and I'll share kind of the main point or the big takeaway. I want to reverse that. Today, I want to give you the main point right away. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you the main point right away and I want to spend the rest of our time explaining what I mean. Here's our big idea for today use your judgment, not your judgment. Does that clarify <laughs> this passage? Use your judgment, not your judgment. I I hope that you will remember that statement, but really the key to understanding what Jesus means when he says, judge not, lest you be judged, is recognizing that just like the English word judgment has what's called a semantic range, a range of meaning, the Greek word also has a range of meaning. And this verse, Matthew chapter seven, verse one, is incredibly widely known and quoted and also incredibly misinterpreted. 
And, uh, and so I want to I help us break this down. The Greek word is krino. Everyone say krino. Krino means to judge in a legal sense, in a judicial sense. I don't think Jesus is talking about that. If you're a Christian, you can't go into law, right? I don't think he's talking about that. Uh, it also could mean to condemn, to condemn someone, to ruin someone's reputation. I mean, this is essentially what the, the Pharisees are doing, right? They're condemning this woman in their midst. And then it could also mean to discern, and we use the English word that way as well, right? You want your children to exercise good judgment when they're you know, out with friends, right? And that's what I mean when I say Jesus wants us to use your judgment as in your discernment. He's not trying to take away any kind of reasoning, especially moral reasoning, redefining good and evil. He, he wants us to use our judgment, but he doesn't want us to use our what? Our judgment in the sense of condemnation. I want to compare those two ideas. Uh, Crino, in the condemning sense, is to be hypercritical, more critical than necessary. It's to be destructive. Think of those men throwing stones, wishing to destroy, hoping to destroy. Maybe to say something with the intention of the other person feeling bad. And in some cases, even to take joy in that. Man, I, I hope when that person reads that Instagram comment, I hope they just feel horrible about themselves. It's to be cold, uncaring. It's to be hypocritical, an unwillingness to acknowledge your own faults or flaws. You couldn't care less. That's what it means to condemn. That's what Jesus is telling us not to do. So I want to be very clear about that. Uh, he wants to rid the church of what we might call judgmentalism. And yet, he's not trying to rid the church of discernment. So to contrast, to condemn, means to discern. To, to discern is to be critical. It's to use your, your critical thinking. To understand and discern right from wrong, moral judgment and reasoning. It's to be, instead of destructive, it's to be constructive. I mean, what parent who sees their child doing something that's going to hurt them, what parent doesn't give constructive feedback maybe don't place your hand on the burner next time, right? I mean, the most loving thing to do is, is to exercise discernment and to, to give maybe feedback or criticism, but to do so in a constructive or loving way. It's to prioritize the relationship, be compassionate, to be genuine, to care about the other person, and to ultimately desire repentance, to desire repentance or reconciliation. You, could, you might say this is the difference between two Old Testament prophets. It's the difference between the prophet Jonah and the prophet Jeremiah. By the way, the book of Jonah in the Old Testament is one of those books that you need to make sure when you tell that story to your kids, it's an example of what not to do. Okay, Jonah is like the prophet that you don't want to be like. Uh, he runs away from God's calling to preach repentance to, to the Ninevites. The Ninevites have done evil towards Israel, and they're an incredibly immoral culture. And Jonah doesn't want to go because he doesn't want them to repent. It's not because he's scared of going to the Ninevites. It's because he's scared of if God actually decides to forgive them. And at the end of the story, what happens? He preaches repentance to them, and they actually repent, and God forgives them. And now who's Jonah angry at? He's angry at God. He could care less about an entire city being destroyed. At the end of the story, he's berating God for not raining down fire on those filthy sinners. Don't be like Jonah, okay? That's the point of Jonah. 
And then Jeremiah, on the other hand, also has a prophetic ministry from God, but he's uh, given that ministry during the period of the Babylonian exile, right at the beginning of the Babylonian exile, and he gets to watch as Babylon marches in, they destroy Jerusalem, they kill people, they take them off into captivity. And Jeremiah doesn't give the people this instruction. Now hold it against the Babylonians. Make them pay. Hold a grudge. Be bitter. What does he say? Seek the welfare of the city. Love the people that have actually ruined your life and destroyed our nation and are putting us in slavery. That's the difference, right, between judgment and judgment. He's not telling the people what the Babylonians did is great, right? He hasn't thrown good and evil out the window, but he's actually telling them to build the city. The reality is Jesus tells us not to judge. He's, he's giving us this metaphor that it's similar to something you would encounter in economics. He says, for the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. This is a common practice if you were to go and let's say buy grain in the ancient world. In the first century, you go to buy grain and there, you would expect that there would be a standard measure, whether this would be a standard, standardized size scoop or a standardized weight that they would you know, take your bag of grain and they would weigh it until the two would be equal. Does that make sense, right? And so if you were a sketchy businessman, you could mess with the measure and you could actually you know, skim a little bit off the top and you could give someone less grain than they actually paid for and they thought they got the full measure but they didn't. Does that make sense? What Jesus is saying, if you deal with people like that, do you expect God to deal fairly with you? If you deal harshly with people, if you deal with a, with a corrupt standard of measure with other people, man, you can expect that same kind of treatment from God. The reality is, one of the reasons we should not be judge, jury, and executioner is because we're never quite unbiased, are we? God judges the heart, but we only can look at the outward appearance. James, the brother of Jesus, picks up on this logic in James 4.12, his letter to the church. He says, there is only one, everyone say one. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And so when we take it upon ourselves to be the judges of this world, we're actually playing God. We're, we're taking God's job from him, and we're acting like we are qualified when the reality is we are not. Billy Graham is famous for this line. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. And similar to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, I've heard this quoted, maybe misquoted with the proper intention. We have to be careful. Billy Graham's great. He's not the Bible, though, okay? So whenever you're quoting something that's not scripture, you have to be careful there. Uh, and, but I think he is right in this assessment. The Holy Spirit is the one who is who pierces our hearts and convicts us of sin. God is the one who is, you know, there's only one judge and it's not you, it's God. And Jesus told us what he required of us with the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So I think, I think he's accurate. But for someone who is like, see, there's never a time or a place to identify sin or to call out evil or injustice. I would just ask the question, have you ever heard Billy Graham preach? Have you ever listened to a full-length Billy Graham sermon? Because he talks a lot about sin and hell and punishment and judgment. 
So even though Billy Graham is saying it's Holy Spirit's job to convict people of sin, he's going to be very crystal clear that, that sin exists and we should, uh, we should repent and we should be drawn into repentance by God. So here's the practice for us. Let God be the judge. If you're someone who views yourself as it's your you know, moral responsibility to go around and to make everyone feel bad, to conv- you're the one who's convicting everyone, you're the judge, jury, and executioner, let God be the judge. Let God be the judge. I mean, in, in the same way that you're, that you're being harsh and hypercritical and destructive of them, you're actually inviting, I mean, inadvertently possibly, you may not have even known you were doing this, you're inviting stricter judgment from God upon you. And that is a serious Serious teaching from Jesus. Let's continue through our text from Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? This is an absurd illustration. Uh, Jesus uses a carpentry illustration, which is very fitting, because before Jesus entered into ministry as a rabbi, what did he do for a living? He did carpentry, right? He took on Joseph's trade as a carpenter. And, and even if you're not necessarily uh, a carpenter by trade, I mean, we've all probably done a household project, a DIY. I mean, YouTube, it'll just boost your confidence, right? And you, you've done something, and you thought, I don't need safety goggles. This is such a simple fix, right? And so you started drilling a hole in the sheetrock, or you went to the saw, or whatever, right? And it only took you five minutes to realize the error of your ways. You do, in fact, need safety goggles. Safety first. And what happens is you get a little speck in your eye, okay? So this is the illustration. Jesus says, so imagine there's someone who, you know, you're working together, you're on the same job site, and they get a speck in their eye. And then you go over there, and uh, you want to help them out, but while you were working, uh, you actually had this traumatic head injury <laughs> where something crazy, you're like sawing this, and somehow it like flew in the air, did some flips, and it's like lodged in your skull. This is absurd, by the way. The Sermon on the Mount is full of hyperbolic, extreme, absurd illustrations. So this is what Jesus is doing. Get, imagine you're in this situation, and you're like, bing, okay. And you hear your buddy, and they're like, oh, I got something in my ear. You're like, really? <laughs> and you walk over to them. You're like, let me see. And you use your one good eye, right? And you're like, let me see if I can help you. How crazy is that? I mean, in the first sense, in severity, which one of you needs to be dealt with first? The log, okay? The log. How serious is your, I mean, you're, you're neglecting to acknowledge the seriousness of your own sin is what it represents, the seriousness of your own sins, and you're trying to be hypercritical and, and take a tiny speck out of someone else's eye. I mean, it's, I, I also think of that idea of in the airplanes, right, when the oxygen masks, they tell you, before you help your neighbor first make sure your own oxygen is secure and flowing and, and all that sort of stuff. And so the reality is what Jesus is saying is that we all have these things called blind spots. So the practice is to find your blind spots, identify your blind spots. Sin, more than anything else, I believe blinds us. It blinds our vision. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
And if there's someone who has trouble seeing God, seeing God through creation or seeing God in the world, uh, I think the number one thing that blinds us is, is our own sin, is sinfulness. But sin not only blinds us to God, it also blinds our vision. It blinds our discernment in general. And so how foolish, I mean, you would probably do more damage if you had a log sticking out of your eye and you were trying to help someone while, while not dealing with your own sin. And I just want to challenge you to be very real about this for a moment. What are your blind spots? Maybe people have tried to tell you before, but you did not have an ear to listen. What, what's that line from Jesus? He who has ears, let them hear. Well, we all have ears, but what he's saying is, are you ready to hear it? Are you ready for someone to actually call you out? What are the sins that you need to repent of? The things that maybe you know, but, but they're hidden, they're secret. What are, what are the character flaws that you still have? And you've been kind of justifying them as your personality type, and I'm here to tell you being a jerk is not a personality type, <laughs> Right? Being rude is not a personality type. Being bitter is, like, there's things that we just kind of chalk up. It's just how God made me. And I'm like, come on. I know God didn't make you like that, right? What are the fruit of the Spirit? You want a real good self-assessment? Forget all those online self-assessments. Read Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, and give yourself a one to five rating on all the fruit of the Spirit. And where are you lacking? You'll find your, your blind spots really quick. If, if you're not coming up with anything, and I would just say, pray about it and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal your sins to you. A lot of Christians say that they've never heard from God. And I would say, well, maybe you've never asked the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin. I think that's one of the most clear ways that God speaks to us through his Spirit is convicting us of our own sin. And I would challenge you to do that. And we also need other people in our lives. We need the prophets in our, in our own lives. Not just those who, you know, on social media, or not just those who are going to call out sin in general in the world. We need people who are personally going to help us identify. Because here's the reality. That blind spot, that log sticking out of your eye, you may not be aware of it, but guess who can see it? Literally everyone except you. Ask your spouse if you want to know what your blind spots are. It's going to be a fun drive home from church today. <laughs> we all need someone like Nathan. Do you remember that from 2 Samuel? David, a king, a man after God's own heart. He sinned, committed adultery, conceived a, Bathsheba conceived a child out of wedlock with him. She was married at the time, and so David had her husband executed, killed. And he didn't see anything wrong with it. Want to talk about a plank in your eye? Like, this is like we read it, and we're like, this is insane. How can he not see the evil that he has committed? And it takes a prophet from God, the prophet Nathan, coming to David, and Nathan tells him this story, although David doesn't know it's a story. David thinks that this is a, a real thing, you know, a real situation that he, as the king, needs to handle. And the story is, is very simple. You have a poor man who only has one sheep, and you have a rich man who has tons of sheep. And David knows a little bit about sheep because he was a shepherd before he was a warrior, before he was a king. And uh, so he cares about sheep. He's like, I love sheep, man. And so uh, the rich guy goes to the poor guy and he steals his sheep and he kills it and he feeds it to a visitor. And David is livid. He says, give me that guy's phone number. Give me that guy's username. I'm going to tweet him. No, he says, I'm, I'm going to kill that man who stole the sheep. You want to talk about a plank versus a speck. 
capital punishment for stealing a sheep. You shouldn't steal sheep, but don't kill someone if they stole a sheep, right? Like, this is crazy. And in a moment of truth, the prophet Nathan utters this line from 2 Samuel 12, 7. You are the man. David's about ready to kill. He's about ready to judge. And Nathan flips it around on him. He says, you are the man. And I'm here to tell you this difficult truth for us as a church. You are that man. You are that woman. And the Holy Spirit needs to put a mirror in front of us so that we can see our own blind spots. Paul in Romans uh, begins the book of Romans really with a list of sins. In Romans chapter one, a lot of people don't like reading Romans chapter one because it is just a list of sin and immorality. But then he gets to Romans chapter two and some Christians might read Romans chapter one and use it as ammunition to judge others. But then we get to Romans chapter two and Paul says, not so fast. This is what he says in Romans 2, verses 3 through 4. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you, to draw you to repentance? And to be fair, when he, when he says you do the same things, he doesn't mean you practice the exact same sins. What he means is this idea that he's going to get to in the very next chapter in Romans 3.23, for all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so like, how dare you pick up the stone ready to execute your neighbor when you yourself are not acknowledging the hidden sin within your heart? We all need justification before God. We've all sinned and fallen short of his glory. And an uncomfortable truth is that Jesus will come back and every single human being who's ever lived, past, present, and future, will stand before Jesus as the righteous judge one day. And we will all give an account for what we have done. And you can either stand in that place, relying on your own life, your own righteousness to try and save you, and we know that it won't be able to, or you can acknowledge not only that God is just, but he's also the justifier of the wicked. He's not only the, the righteous, the just judge, but he's the one who stepped down off of the podium and faced the punishment himself who made a way for us to be actually, truly, in a very real sense, forgiven, declared innocent before him by sending Jesus Christ, the righteous one, to live a perfect life and to die in our place on the cross. And when he died on the cross, it was not only a physical punishment he was facing, but he was facing this eternal kind of wrath and judgment that you and I deserve for sinning against the eternal God of the universe. And he died on that cross, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day, has victory over sin and death. And now he offers that victory to you. He offers that justification to you. You can be forgiven today. You can be declared innocent today. And so on judgment day, which we will all face, you can either stand there facing that judgment on your own, or you can stand there clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You can stand there secure in the grace that God has for you, relying and depending not on your own work, but relying and depending on the work that Jesus accomplished for you in your place, on your behalf. 
And I just want to tell you today, if you don't have that confidence, if you've never received the gospel and put your faith in Jesus, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Today might be the day that the Holy Spirit is drawing you to repentance. Remember, it's not a fear of punishment that draws us to repentance. What is it? It's God's kindness. It's his patience. And God has been patient with you up to this point in your life, and maybe even today. He's giving you this grace, grace enough to hear this message and respond to the gospel and to be made clean, to be made righteous, to be declared innocent. And you can stand in judgment day in confidence before Jesus Christ, the righteous one. One of the things that brings so much joy to me is how God has been drawing people to himself in this last season. And uh, I wanna invite you to respond to the gospel, not only through prayer, certainly wanna invite you to pray and ask God to forgive your sin and lead your life, but the way Jesus instructed us to receive the gospel is through baptism. Declaring your faith in him through baptism. And uh, we have a baptism Sunday coming up, Labor Day weekend, September 4th. And uh, there's, there's a guy last Sunday named Liam who's like, I'm going to college on Thursday. Could we get baptized sometime this week? And Liam got baptized Tuesday afternoon of this week. Can we celebrate that? And it just seems like week after week after week, God is moving and opening people's hearts. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and draws us to repentance. It's God's kindness that draws us to repentance. And maybe the Holy Spirit is moving in your life right now. And I want to urge you not to delay. I want to urge you, if, to, if the Lord has opened your heart, today can be the day of salvation for you. I want to invite you to sign up to get baptized. We'd love to baptize you Labor Day weekend if you're going to be around or, or schedule another time. You can go to hillcityboise.org slash baptism to learn more about that or to sign up. And we would love to celebrate with you the new life that God is creating in you. The beauty of the gospel is that when we receive God's grace and we, live, we, we declare our faith in Jesus Christ, there's this beautiful promise that Paul gets to in Romans 8. He says this, there is therefore now no condemnation. How much condemnation? No, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can be 100% justified before God today by believing the gospel and putting your full trust and faith in Jesus. And I just wanna invite you to respond to the work that Jesus has accomplished in your place and on your behalf. Let's continue through our text. Matthew chapter seven, verse five. Jesus starts abruptly. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, the reality is even after you, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Even after you're justified, you still need to be sanctified. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, you still have a plank in the eye problem. You still have a log in your eye problem. We're declared innocent and we're freed from uh, the penalty of sin. But for many of us, there's still the old self kind of this old habits of sin that we still need to be freed from. And uh, John Mark Comer puts it like this in his book, Lift No Lies. He says, the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. And so some people think it, it's a bad sign. I mean, you, you get baptized and you try your very best never to sin again, to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the command of Jesus, right? And then you do. And so what, what do you do? It, if you think that 
you'll be perfect forever, right? And you come up out of the baptismal waters, and then later that afternoon, you sin. What there's a tendency or a temptation to do is to then wear a mask, to become a hypocrite, essentially, is what Jesus is saying, and to pretend that you don't sin anymore, or to go to church and pretend that you don't sin anymore, or to be around your friends, maybe your friends who aren't Christians, pretend that you're better than them, right? That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about, no, 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 in fact, continuing to feel conviction, which essentially is just feeling bad for sin, which you know, a lot of us don't like to feel, but it's an essential part of our, our, of our discipleship to Jesus Christ. Feeling bad for sin, becoming aware of things that you have yet to be cleansed of is not a sign that the Holy Spirit is not with you. That's actually a sign the Holy Spirit is inside of you and is active and is tearing down the callousness in your heart and that God wants you to continue to chip away the brokenness inside of all of us and to make us more like Christ. And what Jesus says when he says, take the log out of your own eye, what I think we can learn from this is that sanctification is not a passive process. Yes, the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts us. The Holy Spirit is the one that does that, you know, that, that sanctification in us, but we must walk by the Holy Spirit. That means we must, he's gonna, the Holy Spirit might even show you, here's a few planks, today, maybe even. Here's a few planks in your eye. He's gonna also ask you to do something about those planks, to get accountability, to confess your sin, to seek reconciliation, to put better boundaries in your life. Does that make sense? The Holy, so sanctification is not this passive, blame God for the ways that you aren't sanctified yet because you're just sitting there waiting for him to do something in you. The Holy Spirit might be calling you to action, to grab the plank and do something, to seek medical attention, we would say, if you actually had a head injury like that, right? And so the reality is, when we do that, as we go through this process of sanctification, a lot of people never actually read through the end of this passage, where they love quoting, judge not. I mean, who am I to judge, right? Love quoting that part. But then you get to the end of Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. Jesus says, after you've removed the plank, what are we supposed to do? Attend to the guy with the speck. Because imagine you don't have a mirror, I mean, think about this. I mean, you've probably had this before. Have you ever had that moment where you did have something? You're like, could you just take a look? Seriously, I, there's got to be something. Is it that? Oh, man, right? You, we need. It actually is the loving thing to do. Not in a hypocritical, you've got a log, so you're going to find the speck in everyone else's eyes. Because that's just a way of avoiding your own accountability. It's just a way of avoiding your own conviction, right? The easiest way to avoid feeling bad about your life is to point the finger at everyone else's flaws, right? But as you receive sanctification by the Holy Spirit, God actually wants you, and Jesus actually commands you to go to a brother or sister. Again, this is within the household of faith, to go to a brother or sister and to help them get even something more minor than what you've been freed of from your own eye. Jesus commands this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. He's speaking about how uh, a church, how us within the body of believers need to handle confrontation and conflict. This is what he says. If your brother sins against you, go and make sure not to point it out to him because you don't want him to feel bad. No, what does he say? Tell it to him. Tell it his fault. Help him identify. Like maybe your, your brother or sister didn't actually know there was a speck in their eye. 
that's getting infected, that's causing a problem, that's maybe creating division in the church. The reality is spiritually mature people who've overcome sin and temptation in some ways, helping people who aren't quite as mature, who are not as far along in the process of discipleship, that is the, the essence of what discipleship is. Do you realize that? Helping younger Christians identify ways that they still need to become more like Christ. And so in, in a very real sense, Jesus is counting on the church doing this. And the American church hates doing this. Hates calling out sin in one another. Loves calling out sin in the world, but not necessarily within our own household. This is discipleship. Uh, the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke chapter 6, is, uh, contains many parallel teachings as the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7. And in this passage, it doesn't contain all of the same teachings, but it does contain this teaching on judgment. And uh, it's really sandwiched. It's kind of broken into two bits. And there's a couple of verses in the middle that I think are really interesting with how uh, Luke records this in Luke 6, 39 through 40. This is, again, within the context of not judging lest you'll be judged. He says this, and he told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Rhetorical answer. No, essentially. Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but when everyone is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. And this is a phenomenal, it's a very powerful passage on uh, discipleship. Essentially, you're going to pass on the best parts of you and the worst parts of you to the people that you disciple. Does that make sense? And uh, picture this. You've got a plank in your eye and you're trying to help someone else grow spiritually, this is the danger, and pretty soon they want to be like you, so they develop their own what? Their own plank in their eye. And now you have a blind person leading a blind person, and Jesus is essentially saying, that does the kingdom of heaven no good whatsoever. Exactly, right? And when we see this in our children, I mean, it's, it's like a sad comedy when you see your kid acting out and you see like sinfulness in your own child and you look at them and you're like that's from me that's that's me right there that's just a little sinful version of me right you see this that we pass on in our parenting but parenting is essentially discipleship right you pass on the best the most admirable and the worst aspects of your character to your children and also to your disciples and yet Jesus is counting on you if you've experienced freedom. You may not be perfect yet. You may not be all the way there yet, but Jesus is counting on you if you've experienced not just justification, but sanctification. You've grown into maturity in in one way or another in your discipleship. He's counting on you to help somebody with a speck in their eye. Do you recognize this? So here's the practice. Help someone grow spiritually. Another way to say this is this is the difference between discipleship and disciple-making. When you reach a certain point of maturity in your discipleship, it's actually not complete. You haven't reached that end goal until you turn around and you begin disciple-making, which is helping someone else grow spiritually. And I want to challenge us as a church. We have to grow in our culture of disciple-making. 
It's not always comfortable. In fact, it's very messy and awkward at times because you're dealing with the brokenness of another human being. You're exposing your own flaws. You might be discipling someone and they actually expose a way that you log in your own eye and you're like, I was supposed to be discipling you. Come on, right? And and it's this, this messy process and yet this is how the kingdom of heaven grows. This is the mission of the church to go make, everyone say it, disciples. This is it. This is our task until Jesus Christ returns. And I want to challenge you. Maybe you've matured in your discipleship. That means you've experienced a lot of logs being removed from your eyes. You've grown in righteousness. You've grown in Christ's likeness. The fruit of the Spirit is just flowing out of you. Are you helping someone else experience sanctification? Who? Who are you? If you have kids, I'll make it easy for you. It's your kids. Your primary role as a Christian parent is the discipleship of your own children. Yes, they need food and water and sunlight, just like a plant, but you really need to disciple your kids. That's your, I mean, that's your, like, your primary role there. But if, I mean, for you, if, if you don't have an answer to that question and you have grown in maturity in Christ, you need to start discipling someone. I mean, it could be as simple as, as, you know, taking someone to coffee and talking to them about their life and praying for each other. It could be as simple as joining kids' ministry or youth ministry. It could be as simple as, as going through a process of becoming a life group leader. And I would just encourage you, discipleship. Jesus' intention is that discipleship always leads to disciple-making. And disciple-making could be summarized as people who've had planks removed, helping remove specks from other people's eyes. So the point of Jesus' teaching is not that no one needs specks removed from their eyes, but he tells us the appropriate and the right way to get there. All right, we've got one more verse in our teaching passage for the day, and I just want to warn you, it's a bit bizarre. Matthew 7, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That's pretty self-explanatory, right? (laughs) Moving on. No, it is a puzzle. It's like... Many scholars and commentators don't know quite what to make of this, so I'm going to do my best to interpret it uh, for you. It's possible, it's quite possible that this is uh, a saying that people would have been familiar with in Jesus' original audience, and Jesus is just kind of quoting, don't throw your pearls before pigs, and everyone's like, got it, because they understood that. Uh, If that's the case, it's been totally lost to time. We don't see any other records of it, and it sounds a bit bizarre to us. Other commentators might argue uh, Gentiles were called by especially hyper-religious groups like the Pharisees dogs. And so uh, some might think that, you know, the gospel is the sacred food, and Gentiles are dogs, and so you're not supposed to evangelize the Gentiles. Does that make any sense when you know the ministry of Jesus, who's a friend of tax collectors and sinners? who commanded us to go into all nations, not just the Jewish people, but all nations, right? So so I don't think that's necessarily a strong interpretation. I'll give you my interpretation. The removal of a speck from the eye is one of the most delicate things that you can do for another human being, correct? Right? And maybe you've done that, and they're like, it's, it's right there, I promise. And you're like, I see it, I see it. And they're like, okay. And then you like get in close, and you like, they're like, oh, no. And you're like, I didn't even touch your eye. And you're like, it felt like you're dead, you know? It's this thing. And, uh, and yet, I mean, this is a metaphor for how we share the truth of the gospel. 
It's, it's a metaphor for how we disciple one another into Christ-likeness. And the reality is, even when you're sharing the gospel with the world, to speak a true gospel, you have to include at least some element of we are sinners in need of salvation. You have to acknowledge that sin exists, that there's punishment, that there's judgment for our sins. Otherwise, I don't believe that that's a true gospel or a complete gospel. And when you do that, some people not only will kind of flinch backwards, but in a similar way as a wild animal. And and in the metaphor, when he's talking about dogs and pigs, this isn't like your little teacup pig. It's not like a little cute. This is like wild boar, okay? Imagine that you saw a wild dog or a wild boar out on the street, and you're like, man, I think think that that animal needs help, and you want to offer it food. You're like, come over here, little buddy. And it doesn't look like a little buddy. It looks like a mean, you're like, I'm pretty sure that might be a coyote. I don't really know what they look like, so we'll, we'll try it. And you're like, come on, little buddy. And it comes over, and it bites your hand. And you're like, do I have a rabies shot? I don't know. <laughs> and it bites your hand, and you're like, oh, man, but I'm really compassionate. So you've got you know, the flesh wound, and you're like, well, I still want to help it out. And so you go over again. Like you, what? Helping disciple others. And there are going to be people that you do your very best to speak the truth in love. And they're not hearing any of the love. They're not feeling it. And they're going to lash out at you in some ways like a, like a wild animal. In Proverbs 9, verse 8, it says, do not reprove, that's to rebuke someone, a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. There's going to be people that you're like, hey, man, I, just, I don't want to, I promise, I'm not trying to judge you, but I think there's a speck in your eye, right? And you're going to try your very best to tell you, like, no, I'm not, I'm not hating on you. I'm not trying to be a hater here. But I want to help you. I genuinely love you, care about you. You have a platform of a relationship. How do you know the difference between a scoffer and a wise man? Oftentimes, you don't until you reprove them. And then it becomes evident that person is very hostile to me. They're hostile to the truth of God's word. And I just ask you that question. Is it your job to convict them and to make them open to the gospel? It's the Holy Spirit's job to do that. And so what what I think Jesus is instructing us to do is what he makes crystal clear, right? This is a little bit enigmatic here in, in Matthew 7, but he makes crystal clear in Matthew 10, verse 14. This is instructions Jesus gives to his disciples when they're preaching the gospel door to door. He says this, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Essentially, Jesus says, move on. Move on. Use your discernment. Use your best judgment, right? And uh, the reality is he's not saying that because God doesn't love or care about those people. What he's saying, and, and he's not even saying that you shouldn't pray for those people because I think that's, you know, when you're out of options, you can always pray. If you have family members, if you have friends, and you're like, they are always so hostile. Like that wild animal, it, that's not far off from my uncle or whatever, right? You can always pray, You can always pray that the Holy Spirit would convict, would soften someone's heart. It's not your job to convince that person of their sin, right? We speak the truth, and we're going to use our judgment when we identify the truth. We're going to use our our discernment in how we share the truth, but don't be judgmental when you do so. I want to end with two real-life examples that I think will help. We've talked a lot about the negative of, of not judging. I want to share two examples of people who I think do this pretty well. Not perfect people, so don't judge these people. 
but two examples. There's a cultural myth that I encounter all the time that you cannot truly love someone without affirming every belief or lifestyle or behavior of that person. Have you encountered this, this myth? I, I think this is one of the greatest cultural myths of our day and age. Uh, and I, I want to show you two people who I think uh, manage this tension really well. The first one is Preston Sprinkle. Maybe you've heard of Preston Sprinkle. He's a, an author. He's also the president for the Center for Faith, Gender, and Sexuality. Essentially, he advocates for uh, a historically Christian perspective on sexuality, that sex is designed by God uh, for a man and a woman in the covenant relationship of marriage, right? He, he advocates that uh, historical Christian view, view of sexuality. He wrote a book specifically dealing with homosexuality, and the title of the book is People to be Loved, not the sin of homosexuality. You see that? In the book, he's clear on his beliefs that he believes practicing homosexuality is not God's design and it is therefore sin. But the book, he's clear about that, but he's, the book's called People to be Loved. Why homosexuality is not just an issue. It's a, it's a, there's a person, there's a name, there's a face. Uh, he's a guy who has legitimately more LGBTQ people around his table and is genuinely friends with than, than anyone else I know. And uh, he has people on his podcast who he disagrees with, and he still platforms them. And if you were to listen to a podcast episode where Preston Sprinkle is interviewing someone who stands on the other side of the fence, and you were to listen to the kinds of questions he asks and the tone of his voice, those people know he loves them, and he respects them, and he honors them. He has this saying, we can get the Bible right, but if we get love wrong, we're wrong. And I think that's a beautiful embodiment of this idea of you don't have to agree or even affirm someone's lifestyle as righteous while still showing them kindness and honor and respect. That's the first example. The second example uh, is another local leader. Her name is Brandy Swindell. She's the CEO of Stanton International. Uh, Stanton Healthcare, uh, this is their mission, Stanton Healthcare, you can read this on their website. They provide life-affirming options to abortion-vulnerable women and provide hope to those struggling from the pain of a past abortion. Uh, you will often see Brandy Swindell lobbying in Washington, D.C. on a national scale for pro-life legislation. Uh, she was especially active you know, during this, the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And yet, while it's, you don't have to guess where she stands on the issue of life in the womb, you don't have to, you don't have to blink twice. Like you, you know exactly where she stands. She literally created a healthcare clinic and paid money to get a lease in a building right next to the former location of Planned Parenthood, where they literally provide free counseling, free healthcare, free resources for women who have had abortions. And so... A woman who's, who's gone through that experience doesn't walk into Stanton Healthcare and experience judgment from the volunteers and the staff people who are there. Their literally whole goal is to care for and love those women. And I've seen online just, just so many arguments with, the, with, I mean, it's been a hot button issue, obviously, with the overturning of uh, the Roe v. Wade decision that, you know, how dare Christians advocate for a pro-life position? You know, don't they know that, you know, you actually have to care for someone after birth and foster and adoption? Do you want to know who invented an orphanage? 
The concept of an orphanage was invented by the church in the third century AD to care for all of the discarded children from the Romans. It's literally in our religion, James 1.27. True religion is this, caring for the orphans and the widows. Christians are more than twice as likely than anyone else to adopt. I mean, Christians are leading the way in foster and adoption. Do you want to know who provides the donations for the free health care from Stanton Clinic? Primarily churches, right? And so this is, this is a beautiful reality of there's a, there's, a, there's a strong ethical precedent, there's a, a strong viewpoint there, but there's also all of this support and love and care, and it's not just talking the talk, it's walking the walk and being willing to stand in the gap and care for people. So those are two real-life examples. I hope that's helpful for you, because we don't see many examples of people who manage those tensions. All right, I want to give you one more example. It's the ultimate example of Jesus Christ himself. I mean, Jesus teaches this incredibly difficult teaching, but he embodied it himself. Uh, When he's there in that scene, I want to bring you back to John chapter 8, and the men are there. They're about to throw the stones. Jesus kneels down in the dirt, and he starts writing. We're not sure what he writes, but one of the things he says is, let you who is without sin, do you know the line? Cast the first stone. And one by one, these guys who are ready to kill this woman, think about it. They set down the stone, one by one, until they're all gone. And then Jesus has this interaction with the woman in John 8, 10 through 11. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Now, who's the only one who's never sinned? So Jesus could have said, well, here I go. I'm the one without sin, and I'm going to cast the first stone. But look at what he does. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And as the church, Jesus wants certainly to rid the church of judgmentalism, but he also wants the church to stand for truth and to preach a true gospel into this world and to to disciple people into righteousness and the life that God has for us. And we must learn to manage the tension that Jesus perfectly embodies. Neither do I condemn you. Go sin no more. And so one last practice for us as a church, set down your stones. If there are certain sins, certain hot button issues that you can't help yourself, then be judgmental and critical and harsh. And you almost take joy out of people feeling bad and you winning an argument. God is calling you today, not just to identify your own sin, but to set down your stones. To set down your stones and to recognize it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. Let's stand and worship our great God. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.